along, march along, march along to the song of the Merry Marble Marching Society. Lift your brow, lift your groan, with the dour sour of the gift you howl, gift you moan, you can lose your sour trust and keep me trimmed and in Welcome to the seventh and last installment of A Marvelous Anniversary, our seven-day celebration of the uh, third anniversary of the Fire & Water Podcast Network, in which we salute the 80th anniversary of Marvel Comics number one, which came out in 1939. This landmark issue featured the first appearance of the long-running Fire & Water-based characters, the Human Torch and Namor the Submariner. I'm your host, Siskoid. I'm not alone. Say hi to Tough Like a Girl's Nathaniel Wayne. Hey, everybody. Yes, it's me. I'm here to stomp on all your fun. <laughs> well, let's find our joy or not. Uh, so, I mean, I'm just I'm just leaning into my reputation at this point. That's true. That's true. So, okay, Marvel Comics number one. Uh, it introduced us to the Human Torch and the Submariner, but they aren't the only intellectual properties from that issue to survive to the present day. Would you be surprised to hear that Kazar was also part of the Marvel Universe since day one. Well, yes, <laughs> con considering that until I looked up Wikipedia, I didn't have a clue who Kazar was. Oh, no. So, yes, I was highly surprised. <laughs> well, in fact, well, it's not the same Kazar, but uh, Kazar predates Marvel Comics number one, having first appeared in his own pulp magazine starting in 1936, published by Martin Goodman, who was, that's right, the publisher of Timely Comics, and thus the issue we... What well, we'd be holding in our hands if we were, you know, rich like Kreezus. Uh, Kazar Magazine only lasted three issues, which accounts for 13 prose stories. The comic story that we're going to look at is, in fact, the first part of an adaptation of Kazar's origin story, King of Fang and Claw, adapted from Bob Bird's short story by artist Bob Thompson. It would run through the next four issues of Marvel Comics, or really Marvel Mystery Comics. The series would be uh, redubbed with number two. And then Kazar would star in original comic stories until issue number 27. But this is a different Kazar from the one that's in the Marvel Universe now. It's just, it's an IP, I guess. It's an IP, just like the Human Torches. Let's get into some synopsis. So people that don't have the issue, you know... Most, most people. One would assume, yes. Yeah, but it's been reprinted several times, so uh, there is a possibility there. And we will put images up on the Fire & Water Podcast Network uh, website, so you can look at what the art looks like. Uh, here's a quick synopsis of these 12 pages. A plane crashes into the jungle in the Belgian Congo with John, Constance, and their young son, David, Rand. John tries to protect his family from jungle threats, but young David seems to have an affinity for the animals. He's never scared and mourns the death of any creature that his father, the big white hunter, kills. Daily, a lion called Zar peeks his head out of the brush to watch the boy. They're almost rescued at one point, but the plane doesn't see their signal, and Constance eventually dies from a tropical fever. John vows to bring his son back to civilization and undertakes the 200-mile trek, but that night, a hurricane hits, and a tree falls on John. The knock on the head gives him the delusion that the jungle was their true home, and David is quite happy about it. As David grows up, he learned all the skills required to survive and lived by the code of the jungle, only kill when necessary. And all this time, the lion Zar kept pace with him, an unseen companion. But Zar got into trouble one day and fell into quicksand. Hearing his roar, David ran to help him and made a sort of bridge to the shore with fallen branches. They became friends. A week later, David smells smoke and he and his father investigate, finding a fat Belgian, the evil Paul the Kraft, 
directing a couple of natives to sift for emeralds in a river. John Rand tells them to leave and stop profaning the land where his wife is buried, but the craft pulls a gun when Rand's back is turned. Acting quickly, David shoots the craft with an arrow in his gun arm, and our two heroes escape. That night, the craft and his men go to Rand's hut to kill them, but David is at the same time in their camp, looking at all the marvels of the modern world. He hears a gunshot, races home, finds it in flames, and John Rand dying. Before his father can mumble a warning, David's back is pricked by a spear, and he's confronted by the craft. Just then, Tsar the Lion comes out of nowhere and scares the villains off. It's just too late for John Rand. He dies in his son's arms. As David mourns, he's approached by the lion, and in the language of the beasts, Tsar adopts him as a brother. He is now Khazar, brother of Tsar the Mighty. A new life awaits. And of course, there are four more chapters to this, uh, you know, in, in Marvel Comics. So, <laughs> yeah, we don't um, get a whole lot of Kazar, the hero in this. You know, he's still a young boy by the time the, the issue ends. Uh, but I, I, I can assure you that he'll have slain the craft by the end of the issue five. <laughs> one presumes. I mean, it, it's very, you know, first hour of Batman Begins kind of thing, go- <laughs> yeah. thing going on. Boy, it's an episode of Gotham. Yes. No, no, it's not because um, I like Gotham a heck of a lot more than I like this. Okay, well, tell me about it. Okay, well, see, the thing is, I'm trying to figure out what it's fair for me to actually judge this on because part of it is it's very much a story of the time. And, you know, these sorts of jungle adventures, they don't fly today for a number of reasons that I'm sure we'll mention at at least some point in all of this. But, you know, it is a product of its time. So there's only so much I'm going to judge it for that. And as far as the concept and the idea, it's not exactly a thunderingly original idea. Tarzan was already well established at this point, but it's got its own little spin in terms of the origin and how he, you know, how he lives like he does. I'm not even going to judge the writing too much, knowing that it was adapted from a prose piece, because normally I'd lay into that, given you know how thick these panels are with with writing and that the images barely tell a story if you're not reading all of these words, but knowing that it was adapted and probably adapted in a way of basically just lifting the prose and adding pictures to it. I don't even really feel like that's a fair criticism either, but that leaves me totally free to criticize the art. And I'm sorry, even by the standards of the time, Holy crap. The lion in the splash page. Okay. Well, I, th- it starts out pretty badly. <laughs> things get off to a bad start. That, that lion it's got the weirdest face and the longest neck. Yeah, it's a guy in a suit. It's like a house cat crossbred with a giraffe. It's bizarre. And there are fleeting moments where the art is pretty good. I would actually say there's like the zoom in page of um of David's father like going mad and that's and that panel is like whoa, that's actually quite harrowing. That's really good. But then there's other stuff like well, like on that same page, you've got his wife succumbing to fever in classic, you know, wrist over forehead, <laughs> swooning pose. So we're dealing with ridiculous composition. But then the next page after that, this has got my favorite stuff. So in the middle of this, we've got the panel of his father, who apparently has also contracted the same elongated neck thing that was that got the lion in that first one. But then... There's the image of David himself, and young David, 
just standing dead-eyed saying, I'm glad, <laughs> is the scariest thing I have seen in a long time. That is terrifying. <laughs> Oh yeah, well, I, it's yeah, the, it's a, a very illustrative style. Uh, it's very simple, that's for sure. I don't know that the modern coloring. We're looking at a you know the, a reprint copy, of course, and it's been recolored. And I always feel like the those recolored comics that no longer look like newsprint. I don't think it looks right. You know, those comics on glossy paper with really opaque color fills. That's not how it used to be. So I think I think there's something really odd about it just in the presentation i i will grant you you go back far enough recoloring is rarely kind to these things but the coloring is like like at most the eighth biggest problem i have with <laughs> with this art so even making for that allowance it doesn't really help there's a lot of dead space and you notice it because of the the color fill certainly yeah Whereas that just would have been basic newsprint. Yeah, you wouldn't have felt that there was so much sky. You know, because the next page after that, a lot of sky. Yellow boxes full of words. There's a lot of dead space in many of these. And it feels like sometimes, like the one where uh, is still on, on that, the page I mean, it, when you see um, Kazar, or he's still David, but Kazar from the back, he's looking at a blank sky. Or he's looking at a bird really far up. Yeah. And uh, he's, his head's in shadow. That's not a bad illustration, but it feels like it would be in an illustrated storybook. It would it would be part of the pulp story uh, kind of thing, and that dead space would be used for just, just for the prose. You're not wrong, but at the same time, you say that image is pretty good. But I'm looking at David, and he looks like he's at the start of a trust fall. He is le- he's a little too <laughs> stiff-backed and leaning backwards a little bit too much. But no, you're you're not wrong in that that kind of composition would make more sense in something that isn't a comic. Right. It does seem like it is. I, I don't know Bob Thompson. That's not an artist I know. I, I know a lot of Golden Age artists from uh, from doing research on the on the subject. And uh, I know the other shows that we've had this week have featured people like Paul Gustafson, who who I know and appreciate. Bob Thompson is not a name that I've come upon before. Is it? Bob Thompson or Ben Thompson? Because it's it says Ben on the first page of the thing. It's not like that changes everything. We're suddenly we're going, oh Ben Thompson. Well, we know who that is. He's so, so much better. Yeah, I know. I, I'm being pedantic <laughs> at this point. So no, you're right. It's Ben Thompson. I, I've been saying Bob for I don't know why, but <laughs> Ben Thompson. Well, probably because the original writer was Bob Bird, and you just that's, got that's it. That's you got it. your your three letter B names mixed up. So Ben Thompson is it. Even less uh, name I recognize. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that you recognize the name that you made up more than the real guy's name. If that doesn't say everything. So I, I agree on that. You mentioned Tarzan. It's also a little bit Jungle Book. You know, all the animals have names. Yeah. And somehow Mowgli, I mean, David seems to know <laughs> their names, including Zar, you know. Uh, and that Kazar means the brother of Zar, and this is like brother to the lions. It's sort of son of the apes. I mean, they're, they're tweaking the Tarzan and Jungle Book stories to fit their purposes. Uh, but of course, the original pulp Kazar only lasted three issues. That's 13 stories. Yeah, that's a very unlucky building uh, in, in another context. So I'm not sure. Yeah, it's not really original or anything. And uh, the other, oh yeah, the other art problem I, that I wanted to mention is the tiny baobabs a baobab i'm not i'm not even sure i'm pronouncing it right in english but is a very you know famously 
a giant tree. It is broad as a building, basically. They're huge trees. And here, a, a baobab falls on David's dad uh, and knocks him on the head. And it's it's really just a palm tree. <laughs> but, like, I don't know Bob Bob Ben Thompson, if he knew, what, you know, if he did any research or had any idea what a baobab was supposed to look like. But that is not what it should be. Nor should a baobab, in any case, probably the problem with the original pulp story, that, that should not be a tree that could be uprooted by, you know, a, a tropical storm, which is what is, is painted as a picture here. So uh, this is sort of an insane... Um, story doesn't match the art kind of moment for me. Well, you know what's you know what's something that I'm thinking about. So now that I'm actually thinking about the Tarzan comparison a little bit more, I'm realizing how some of the differences between this origin and Tarzan make this worse and make it not work as well. Okay, and I, and I don't necessarily mean that in the it ripped it off sense. I'm like, no, I'm gonna compare because this doesn't work as well. So a big part of Tarzan's core thing is. He is raised, he's actually raised, like, from a child by the apes. That is the life that he knows. There's something, especially comparatively, a little bit unsettling about someone who's a jungle adventurer, not because they were raised by apes and that was the only way they could survive the jungle, but because their dad suffered a blow to their head and they were raised by their mentally damaged parent. In a, rather than actually try and actively get them out. There's something, at least for me, a little bit unsettling comparatively about the idea that this guy, oh, was he raised by the animals? No, he was raised by his severely mentally ill father. I'm sorry, what? But the jungle also raised them because there's a like a fantasy element. Yeah, I mean, it's it's still there. It's still an element. But I'm just saying, like, comparatively, the differences between his origin and Tarzan's make me like this one less. Uh, since I'm able to to make the comparison and think about what that says about this character and where they come from. It also makes his survival less impressive because he basically had his father there until he was effectively a, an adult. And so, well, yes, they're in the jungle, but he's not like having to learn on his own the ways of the jungle. His father had to do that, and he then learned from his father. And it's just a little bit less impressive on top of everything else. Although he does have the kinship with the animals, which is an uncanny ability sort of thing. But I, I'm so happy that the dad dies. Uh, not, <laughs> not because, <laughs> not because you know, uh, eventually Kazar has to become Kazar. But who is this person? In the story itself, we see him at, okay, sure, they're surviving. But he's, he's kind of quick to kill animals that David doesn't see as threats. He's basically, he's talking to the snake. He's talking, he might have talked to the cheetah. I don't know. These are images of the great white hunter type stuff that populate jungle adventure stories and that I don't I don't like it. You know, I don't like the the hunting of wild game like that. I don't like to see it as sort of part of the adventure, especially when it's not needed. You know, similarities to Tintin in the Congo kind of come to mind. But if you read this if you, if you read the introduction to this John Rand was basically the owner of a blood diamond mine in apartheid South Africa. <laughs> That's his backstory. Uh. Yep. <laughs> yep. He's not exaggerating, folks. That, 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 they don't use the word blood diamond, but that's what's going on here. He owns a diamond mine in South Africa. So that comes with an incredible amount of baggage. To say the least. And here's, like, some of, some of the other 
stuff. And like what you're talking about is that that's sort of what I alluded to early on, which is that this type of story, like the very nature of this sort of story is very dated and is soaked in a lot of stuff that we have as a society kind of realized, oh, that wasn't actually okay, was it? So like the Blood Diamond thing, that would be one. The Great White Hunter thing, that would be another. Uh, The way that the natives never previously mentioned until they turn up as henchmen of DeCraft are drawn to, I'm sorry, better, very literally look like monkeys. You've got this guy. He's he is so hunched over. And then um, like after after Kazar gets stabbed. No, I'm sorry. Pricked in the back with a spear. What? First of all, if you have a shot at somebody with a spear, who just pricks somebody in the back with a spear? But even setting that aside, and then in the very next panel, you've got DeCraft and there's this native who's behind him. And I'm, he's drawn to look like an ape. The coloring doesn't help, but that is that is not cool. I've seen worse, which doesn't make this good. It's not as caricatured as I've sometimes seen it, yeah. but it ain't good. Comparatively little of that sort of material you know that some of these uh i think zoom did a good job in his episode a couple of days back of dissecting and condemning uh his own jungle adventure comic that he had to work with so in, in this case not a lot of it except there's always that undercurrent in you know colonial tropes when the lead character is in well you know africa's always this massive jungle no matter where you be in Africa you know it's all considered kind of the same place but when the character and this is a problematic with Tarzan as well when he only deals with animals that kind of stuff when instead of natives the character is interacting with animals well yes be because you you can you can have a conversation with an animal better than you could with a black person are you nuts we yeah exactly that's the thing that seems that's an undercurrent in all of these stories is that uh wherever you go in africa it's it's an animalistic world so there's no difference between talking to Zar the lion and speaking to a native. They're all part of this. They're all part of the natural order of that place. And those stories kind of make them equivalent. And when the the hero was always a white person is saving animals, protecting the jungle, that that sort of stuff, which often happens in Tarzan stories or here in a Kazar story, it's basically a white messiah story yeah even if the natives aren't really shown it's yeah white messiah because the animals metaphorically it's all put it's all flattened out and made the same in this these kinds of stories i don't think it's egregious in this particular one but i'm sure later kazar stories lean into it I'm, I'm sure of it i mean it's it's part of why these sorts of stories don't really get told anymore unless it's a grandfathered in character like kazar or like tarzan because Yet the genre, the very premise is steeped in problems. I mean, it it just is, and there's no way around that. The degree to which those problems are on display and how prominent they are will vary from case to case, but the genre as a whole is severely tainted. That's sort of the inherent problem with jungle adventures, especially colonial era time frame set jungle adventures. It's just, it's always kind of a bad look. There isn't really too much of a way around that, which is why, like, I feel it's worth acknowledging, but it's not necessarily um, worth over chastising the thing for because that kind of falls under product of its time. 
And while it doesn't make it okay, it is sort of worth acknowledging, like, these aren't tropes born out of conscious hatred. They're born out of ignorance and presumed superiority, which is problematic. But the people writing this or drawing it were not setting out to demean and undermine African people. That thought literally never crossed their mind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and they do have the craft here is, you know, a Belgian colonial who is shown to be evil and exploiting both the people and the land. At the same time, it just doesn't seem to notice that John Rand, the father, is the same kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah, the the story does not have that self-awareness. Oh, now I need to mention this before I before I forget about it. So, family of 3, two parents and a kid, plane crashes, last name Rand. Mm-hmm. The son like attains power and and notoriety in the land does this sound familiar to anybody at all (laughs) yeah it's iron fist and yeah so because this kazar david rand is not the kazar of the modern marvel universe as i said the the kazar today is kevin plunder uh he lives in the savage land and hangs out with shana the she-devil and a saber-toothed tiger named zabu like you do (laughs) like you do but you know just like the human torch in the golden age isn't the same guy as uh, the the one that's in the Fantastic Four. So Lee and Kirby's 1965 innovation was to throw dinosaurs into the mix, basically. So improving it. Well, yes, th- there are few things that are not vastly improved by the inclusion of dinosaurs. Exactly. And uh, Stan Lee uh, admitted at some point that he never read any of the original Kazar stories. So just he's just using the name and essentially yeah. a Tarzan concept. Nothing else is the same. But the Rand name, it's odd. And I, I wonder if Iron Fist was is it just a coincidence <laughs> that they're all rands i don't know it could be i mean i don't stanley wasn't too involved in iron fist creation i don't think created by roy thomas and gil kane yeah i mean so in their case i would be more likely to lean on deliberate homage whereas stanley if he had admitted at a few points that he was writing so many things that he lost track of what characters were called sometimes, which is evidenced in the fact in some of those early issues, he accidentally, like in the in the scripting, gave characters the wrong name sometimes. Yeah. Peter Parker became Peter Palmer. Doc Ock once called him Superman. <laughs> yes. So, you know, there was plenty going on there. But yeah, one of, one of them was homaging with that one. Because it's, it's a weird coincidence. And you said you had no history with Kazar whatsoever? I mean, the modern Kazar? Zip. I think maybe I've seen him like in the background of some, of a group shot or something. Uh, he just, I mean, like I, he got introduced in the X Men, I think. Yeah, yeah, like hit and and the thing is, as much as I like the X Men in concept and in power set, I've actually come to realize over time how little of the various runs of X Men I actually enjoy reading. They fall apart for me really quick, and so I never met him through that. And then sort of the. The, the Savage Land, you know, whole sort of corner of Marvel isn't uh, an element of the universe I ever got into. I quite I remember I, I, I crossed paths with him in, in X-Men stories, of course, uh, whenever they went to the Savage Land, there he was. You know, my main uh, interest in Kazar was actually there's a Mark Wade series in the late 90s where they kind of played with the the jungle man in New York kind of stuff where he, he would go back and forth uh, and there were stories told you know in a modern contemporary city setting with 
this Tarzan guy. As with Mark Wade's most most of his runs on most of his books he's worked on, I remember enjoying it at the time. Well, yeah, the thing is, you 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 said one thing that piqued my interest, and then another thing that squashed it. You said Mark Wade, but then you also said late nineties. Uh, well, this is when Marvel was coming out of that nineties ness. I felt uh, they they came out with a number of series that were actually not you know the nineties aesthetic, and that's when I picked up. I started picking up Marvel books again after dropping them more or less in 1990 <laughs> I, I, I dropped every marvel book uh, as it became more 90s ish and um or even before it did I, I think there was like a big drop in quality in a lot of books and before they decided to just repeat the image formula i'd already quit most of the books but at the very end they had like carl kiesel on daredevil they had a Kurt Busiek on um, Avengers, and it just like they were trying out these new looks, new aesthetics on some of these books. And I remember picking up, yeah, I don't know, maybe six months worth of comics at that point from Marvel for the first time in in years. And if I didn't go more, you know, longer than that, it's because I stopped buying comics altogether at the end of the nineties, just for financial reasons. Uh, but I remember liking that KSR, just like I remember liking that version of the Avengers, that version of Daredevil. So they were sort of coming out of that uh, 90s, um, well, you know, the, the stuff that, that you've retrialed uh, on one of your shows uh, frequently enough. So I, I think what we call the 90s were over by that point. I mean, I... I suppose that's fair, but at the same time, that pitch you gave me for the premise, my brain immediately went, okay, so it's Tarzan by way of Crocodile Dundee. Oh, yeah, yeah. That said, I haven't reread those books since then, so um, I may be hazy on the on the details, uh, but it, it is something that I would be willing to, to read again. I think, you know, I've seen Kazar in team-up stories and all of that, so what I like about Kazar is the dinosaurs, so sending him to New York... Uh, but it's him and Zabu in New York. So I mean, there's at least there's a prehistoric animal, animal as part of the shenanigans. And I like the whenever Kazar and Shana are together, I like I like power couples in comics. So there's enough there that you could lure me into other Kazar comics. But of course, if it were the David Rand version, none of that is there. There, you know, there's no Shana, there's no dinosaurs. It's just, it is a story that is completely dated. It, it needs that injection of sci-fi. Now, here's a question: like, even understanding that, like, current version of Kazar is not this. Has this original version been acknowledged at all? Because I know, like, they have in some ways acknowledged the android version of the Human Torch at various points. Yeah, uh, he hasn't appeared again. Uh, the only place he's appeared in modern comics is an issue of. Uh, Marvel, the handbook of the Marvel Universe, well, one of the recent ones, uh, they did an issue that was all like Golden Age characters. Uh, so oh, so okay. they acknowledge him there, which doesn't necessarily mean he's part of the Marvel Universe. It just means he was a character from Marvel Mystery Comics and, what you know, the, the timely comics. And so they put every character on there, whether they, they went on to become part of the standard Marvel Universe or not. And uh, that's his only appearance. At that point, it's franchise management. It's just you going, hey, remember, we still own this. <laughs> Although they, they do own the word Kazar in any case. I mean, at, at that point, it's almost a tribute or an homage to you know Marvel's early history in that, that one particular issue. But no, the character himself has not appeared you know, beyond his run in the Golden Age. That would just be confusing. 
There were two Khazars? <laughs> I'm I'm not really sure that there's really much worth preserving out of this version of the character because he's ultimately he's too derivative of just what is the standard template for this kind of adventure. And until you add in dinosaurs, he's not interesting. No, we have this in other forms that are better or more beloved or, you know, um, people can still, if people are interested, they can find some, at least some of these KZR stories, the pulp ones, you know, the prose stories online. I'm guessing they're uh, public domain. So some people have uh, either reprinted them uh, on uh, on websites, I know that someone did republish them as one packaged book at one point. So maybe Amazon can help you out or some other uh, book selling service. It's out there. I don't know the quality of it as far as pro stories go, but the comics are derived from that. And from what we can see here, a lot of purple pros, but it was pulp magazines. You just you know. Type them out, send them out. <laughs> it was it was pretty much the order of the day on those things. Just based off what I'm getting from this prose, from all that kind of stuff, I'm just – if you're a really big fan of this kind of thing and you've read every Tarzan book and you've read everything that Ryder Haggard ever wrote and you can't find anything else, sure, maybe then check it out. Uh, otherwise, I can't imagine a reason to, to recommend seeking this out unless you are really into being a completionist for colonial jungle stories. So if that's your thing, if that's your joy, <laughs> you can probably find it here, or at least if it caters to your interest in the history of this genre. If people find joy in this, I do not want to take that away from him. I know I'm labeled a buzzkill a lot. It is never my intention to stamp on other people's joy. I just often have a hard time finding it for myself in some of this stuff. Well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> on, on that characteristically dour note, I told you I was here to ruin everybody's fun. Then that's it for our marvelous anniversary. But uh, folks, the Fire and Water Podcast Network is entering its fourth year. And we're not letting up in the slightest. Long-running shows are still plugging away. New projects are on the horizon. Uh, we're all about finding our joy, I hope. You're, you're finding your joy as well out there. Uh, thanks for joining me and covering this story, Nathaniel. Sure thing. It, it was a pleasure to work with you. At least that. I do find joy in working with you and the other folks on the network. I do have that. Excellent. So from Master Wayne, myself, and all the podcasters on the network, happy birthday, Fire and Water. Happy birthday, Marvel. Sunny afternoon Night tonight